Now let's turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, please. We're taking up our study again. If you haven't been with us in previous weeks, we're studying Mark's Gospel. This is our 20th, I think, uh, study uh, in the book, and we're only in chapter 3. But we're beginning this morning at verse 20, and we'll be reading down to verse 30. And the title of my message today is Unforgivable Opposition. Unforgivable Opposition. Beginning Mark 3, verse 20. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends, the Lord Jesus' friends, heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because, they said, he hath an unclean spirit. Now, if you can remember a number of weeks ago in our last study, when we looked at how the Lord chose and ordained the twelve disciples in this same chapter, verse 13 to 19, you remember I told you that one commentary, which is a good one on Mark's Gospel by a man called R. Kent Hughes, he entitles the chapter, On the Choosing of the Disciples, Jesus Pressured Jesus. And of course, I told you that was a parody of a line from the favorite hymn, Jesus Precious Jesus. The point he was making is, Jesus was pressurized in his ministry in verses 7 to 19. He was experiencing pressure because of his workload as the servant of Jehovah. And the population around him uh, were making great demands on his ministry. He was experiencing pressure from sick folk and from those who were demonized. Verse 10 and 11 shows us that. And we saw in that study what the method was our Lord Jesus implemented to cope with the pressure of being the servant of the Lord and the demands of his popularity. And the first was prayer and the second was share. He spent a whole night in prayer and he was asking the guidance of Almighty God just before the morn when he would choose his twelve disciples and apostles. But not only did he implement prayer to cope with pressure, but he also shared the ministry and the choosing of the twelve were also a sign that the Lord Jesus implemented practical means to share the load of ministry. Not only was he doing that, but he was also instigating a plan whereby he would spread that message to generations that were to be. 
Of course, those 12 disciples, 11 of them, would become 12 missionaries and indeed many of them martyrs for the gospel cause as they took it to the four corners of the globe. And we are still fulfilling that ministry. The method of the Lord Jesus is unchanged. We ought to follow it as well. Discipling others to take the gospel and preach it to every creature. Now this morning in verse 20 to 30 we see pressure upon the Lord Jesus in a different form. This time it is not coming because of the workload of service but because of opposition to his service. Now we've seen this already in Mark's gospel particularly coming from the scribes and the Pharisees. But this morning we're going to see this opposition to his ministry in two forms and from two sources. First of all, it comes, surprisingly so, from Jesus' friends and even perhaps his loved ones. And then secondly, we see again, it comes also from his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees. Before we go on any further, I want to lay down a few scriptures from John chapter 15 to show us that this is a lesson that we need to learn It's a lesson that Jesus exemplifies in his life and ministry, but it's also something that he taught to his disciples and teaches to us today. And it is simply this. If we, like he, are involved in the service of Jehovah, we will encounter opposition. Look at John 15 with me. Verse 18 reads thus. Jesus said, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And mark these words. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But this is what I want to lay down Uh, as a foundation to everything we will say this morning as we look at the unforgivable opposition that the Lord Jesus faced. He told us also, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Service. Serving the suffering servant of Mark's gospel and the gospel record will entail for us suffering service also. Of course, we've seen many times, particularly in our introduction to this series, how Mark's gospel is the gospel of the suffering servant of Jehovah. It's the gospel that follows him primarily more than any other gospel as he travels the Calvary road and goes to be the sacrifice for our sins. But what Mark is saying to us in this message of his gospel is if we choose to suffer and serve Christ, we must be ready to travel the Calvary road as well. That is a road that leads to a cross and a cruel crucifixion and a death to self, to sin, to popularity. And to be the servant of Christ involves opposition. Like he, it will involve opposition 
from family and friends. It will involve opposition from enemies, even in religious establishment. Now let's look first of all at the first source of the Lord's opposition. Verse 21. It says, His friends heard of it, or his own people heard of it, and they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. The New King James translates that. He is out of his mind. These were close friends of the Lord, perhaps even his relatives. If you look down at verse 31 that we'll deal with in a later week, it says that there came then his brothers and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. Now, we're not told precisely what they wanted to say to the Lord Jesus, but it's likely that whatever it was, it involved a concern either for his safety or for his reputation as a prophet and a miracle worker. It might have been that they heard what Jesus was teaching, what he was saying, what he was doing, and they feared for him. They assumed he's gone mad. He's out of his mind. He's beside himself. Now, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus had brothers and sisters, have brothers and sisters, according to the flesh. And Mark 6 and verse 3 tells us, but John 7 and verse 5 also informs us that some of his half-brothers in the flesh did not believe in him. Now, eventually, uh, they did, but at this point, they didn't. But because of his faithful service to God, the Lord Jesus experienced division in his own family concerning he and his ministry. And Jesus taught us as his disciples today, as his servants now, that we will know the same experience. He tells us in Matthew 10, listen, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against his, her, her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he that takes not his cross and follows me is not worthy of me. If you experience hostility in the home because of your faith, do you know what that is? It is fellowshipping in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have faced opposition in the home, persecution from those who are your friends and your loved ones, you are one of a privileged number. That is the great fellowship of the community of suffering saints who have also suffered at the hands of friends and loved ones, even at times Christian friends and loved ones. You're in the fellowship of Christ. Now you know I love Christian biographies and I'm always encouraging you to read them, but you learn a great deal about the Christian life from these stories of men and women of God of faith. Many do not know that William Carey, who's been dubbed the father of modern missions during his first year in India, was overwhelmed by opposition, not from the Indians, but from family and friends. Everyone seemed to be against him. His own wife, who had never wanted to come to India to begin with, was hostile, and she was sinking into insanity. 
His four children uh, were continually contracting tropical diseases. His co-worker, a man by the name of John Thomas, squandered all their money, leaving Kerry virtually destitute. He could echo the cry of King David when he said in Psalm 41, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. The father of modern missions, as he served the Lord Jesus, suffered as the Lord Jesus suffered. Now, I told you several weeks ago in our Monday evening studies, I think it was the night we looked at Abigail, that John Wesley also suffered from friends and family. His own brother thwarted his attempted marriage to Grace Murray, who was ideally suited to him as a bride. And then later on, he entered into an incompatible marriage to a wealthy widow by the name of Molly Vizelle, and that resulted in uh, her vehement opposition to his ministry and heartache and deep unhappiness. In a tragic marriage, founder of Methodism, the leader of the Great Awakening, opposition from friends and family. After the Great Awakenings in the United States, in the New England area, Jonathan Edwards, who was a catalyst for that awakening, was involved after that revival now in a prolonged opposition to his ministry coming from within his own church. And he was involved in a dispute over whether or not unbelievers should partake of the Lord's Supper. And because of it, his belief was that they shouldn't. In 1750, he was ejected from the pastorate in Northampton where he served for 23 years. These are the greatest spiritual giants that the Christian history have. And yet they all faced suffering in their service. They faced opposition from friends and family and from close believers. And I see a pattern here. I hope you see it too. And it's enshrined, I believe, in Mark's gospel. That the more Christ-like your service will be, the more Christ-like your suffering will be. Even friends and family will oppose it. His own people said he was mad. Then we see his enemies. The scribes and Pharisees, verse 22, they came down from Jerusalem. They didn't say he's mad. They said he has a devil. They accused him of being possessed by Beelzebub. Now, we'll look at what that accusation meant later. But what I want you to see is, not only do we often have opposition from within our own ranks or within our own families, but we need to be awake to the fact that the whole wide world is against us. And the enemies of Christ are still with us today. Remember what he said in John 16, 2. And think of a modern day application of it. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. April 18th, five Muslims entered a Christian publishing company and killed three believers in the southeastern province of Malataya in Turkey. Two of the Christian victims were Turks. Converted from Islam, and the third was a German citizen who had lived in Turkey for 10 years. K. 
killed for their faith, and I can't even begin to enter into how they were killed for their faith. But reports of this event, which have been very scarce, certainly in the United Kingdom, say that the four of the attackers admitted that the killings were motivated, listen, by both nationalistic and religious feelings. They believed that they were doing God a service to kill his servants. And we need to waken up to the fact that Christian service will not be a picnic inside or outside the church. It is a choice to suffer as Christ has suffered. And if we serve as he served, we will suffer as he suffered. Now, let's look, and this is my first point now. Let's look at the form this opposition took. The form, we've seen the two sources, his friends and loved ones and the scribes and Pharisees. But let's see the form the opposition took. The first from the friends and family took the form of saying, Jesus, you're deranged. You are deranged. You're mad. You have got a Messiah complex. The reason probably is because we see from verse 20 that a great multitude gathered and uh, the Lord Jesus and his apostles were kept so busy that they didn't have time to eat and the family and friends hearing of his activities felt you're out of your mind and they sought to, to take him away. They probably were embarrassed by the zeal of what they saw as a religious fanatic in the family. A religious fanatic in the family. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Maybe that's what you have been for many years to some who belong to you. But you know, it's not only unbelievers that sometimes look on Christians, other Christians as fanatics in the family. But if you are on fire for God or have a desire to be on fire for God, many believers see you as a fanatic. That's how they viewed Christ. J.R. Miller says this, and I think it's wonderful. He says, if there were more of this insanity, there would not be so many unsaved souls dying under the very shadow of our churches. It would not be so hard to get missionaries and money to send, to the, send the gospel to the dark continents. There would not be so many empty pews in our churches, so many long pauses in our prayer meetings, so few to teach in our Sunday schools. It would be a glorious things, thing if all Christians were beside themselves as the master was or as Paul was. It is a far worse insanity which in this world never gives a thought to any other world. Which moving continually among lost men never pities them nor thinks of their lost condition nor puts forth any effort to save them. William MacDonald said it well, it is always true that a man who is on fire for God seems deranged to his contemporaries. If we set out to make a fortune, men will cheer us. If we are a fanatic for Jesus Christ, they will jeer us. Are you a fanatic for Jesus Christ? You should be. They accuse Christ of being deranged. That was his friends. What does his enemies say? They accused him not being of deranged, but of being demonized. Verse 22. 
The scribes didn't think he was insane, far from it. They thought he was wickedness personified. They accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, which means the Lord of dung flies or the Lord of filth, which is just another name for Satan. They said, you're casting out devils by the devil. You're casting out demons by Lucifer. And what does that say of these enemies of Christ? It demonstrates the hardness of their heart toward him. Now let me summarize what I've already said and apply it somewhat. What we've seen already as we've looked at the two sources of this unforgivable opposition, and as we've looked at the two forms that it has taken, is that one, sometimes opposition comes to us when we're serving the Lord because of ignorance on the part of others. That was the case with the Lord Jesus. Some just simply didn't know who he was. They were ignorant, and that's why they opposed him. They didn't realize he was the Son of God, the Messiah of God. But then secondly, there was not only those who opposed because of ignorance, but those who opposed because of misunderstanding. They knew who he was, but they misunderstood his mission. He was not the Messiah that they expected nor wanted. They wanted an imperial conqueror who would take the Romans to task and deliver Israel as the kingdom of God again and bring that kingdom on earth there and then. They suspected who he was, but they didn't like the way he was doing his ministry. And then thirdly, there was opposition not only through ignorance and misunderstanding, but there was opposition through pure wickedness. Those who knew who he was, who knew what his mission was, but who rejected him outright. Now we will experience all these forms of opposition as we serve the Lord. Because of others' ignorance. And we've got to live with that. Even at times with their misunderstanding. But sometimes we will be opposed because of absolute wickedness in the hearts of others. And for these scribes and Pharisees who personified that attitude, that attitude was fatal. And so I want you to see not only the form this opposition took, but the fatal attitude that was the unpardonable sin. And we're looking specifically at the opposition of these scribes. Jesus answers the scribe's accusation that he casts out devils by the prince of devils in a twofold manner. First of all, in verse 23 to 26, he teaches them a parable. And the gist of it simply goes that if Satan was casting out demons by Beelzebub, then Satan would be working against himself. Satan would be frustrating his own purposes. And he uses the illustration. Just as a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, or a household divided against itself cannot stand, Satan's kingdom cannot stand if he is casting out his own devils. Because Satan wants to control men through demons, not free them from demons. Incidentally, can I say that the Lord Jesus' illustration applies in every facet of our lives, in our homes, and in our churches a church divided cannot stand. 
Verse 27. Jesus then says, interpreting this parable, whoever defeats Satan must be stronger than he. And Jesus sees himself as a robber, if you like, entering into the strong man's house and seizing that man's goods. Now that's how the Lord Jesus saw his ministry. That's how it panned out in the Gospels. That's what the apostles preached in the Acts and what they taught in the epistles. Listen to 1 John 3. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And in his lifetime, he proved his ministry as he cast out these demon-possessed people, delivered them, freed them from their oppression and possession. But let me say, when he went to the cross, and this is the gospel of the cross, if ever there was one, the Lord Jesus defeated Satan, the grave, hell, and evil forever. And we need to realize in the face of opposition that is wicked, opposition that is satanic. And as it increases, as we near the end of the age and the return of the Lord Jesus, we need to assert that the victory of Calvary is absolute over all evil. And not only must we assert it, we must claim it in Christ's name by faith and in the battle of prayer. I wish I had time to go into that. That's a subject all on its own that we don't have time for this morning. But let us not think that we are fighting for victory. We are fighting in victory. The victory of Calvary. So this is what the Lord Jesus is saying. He has bound a strong man. He has stolen his goods. So he gives them this parable. And then he lays down a principle in verse 28 to 30. That many have known as the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Verily I say unto you, verse 28, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Now what does this mean? And we're going to spend a wee bit of time on this because many explanations have been offered as to what the unpardonable sin is. Many people in our world who are not Christians think they've committed it. Heard of somebody even this morning. He says, I don't think I'll ever be saved. I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. There are even Christians who fear. They profess Christ and they fear that they've committed this at some time, whether before conversion or after conversion. Some people say it is blaspheming the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit does something and you say it's not of God, that is the blasphemy of the Spirit, the unpardonable sin. Others say it's attributing the works of God to Satan. If you go further than saying it's not of God and actually say it's the devil doing it, that's the unpardonable sin. Now is that true? Are any of those definitions correct? Well, whilst some of those things actually did happen here in this portion of Scripture, we need to ask a better question than, than what is the unpardonable sin. What are we to understand as the core of what these opposing people did and said to Jesus? It's not so much to do with words that they spoke 
or even works that they did, but an attitude that they had. And so what we need to ask is, what actually are we to understand was the unpardonable sin? And secondly, can it be committed today? Well, like every interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, context is key. Don't just pluck a verse out of context and give it your own meaning. You've got to root it and ground it in the passage that you find it. And first of all, we note that Jesus says that all blasphemies and sins will be forgiven of men. That's an absolute statement. All blasphemies will be forgiven of men. In Matthew 12, Jesus actually is recorded as saying all manner of sins will be forgiven of men, except, of course, the sin against the Holy Spirit, as found here. Now, let me ask you a question. Matthew 12 and verse 32 actually says that you can blaspheme the Son of God and be forgiven. Jesus said that. Even blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Here's the question. Is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, of lesser importance than the Holy Spirit? Think about it, is he? I mean, if you can blaspheme him and not the Holy Spirit, does that not imply that the Holy Spirit is a little bit more important? Well, if that's not the case, and we believe it's not the case, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal in the Godhead, it must mean that what the Lord Jesus is talking about here is not speaking blasphemies. It's not even thinking thoughts of blasphemy. What we have here is something deeper, something more serious. So what is it? Well, if you take the wider context and you look at Matthew 12, where this verse is found also, we see that these words were spoken by Jesus after he had healed a demoniac who was both blind and dumb. And the crowd were saying round about the ordinary people, perhaps this man is indeed the son of David the Messiah. And they were testifying his true identity. They were responding to God's ministry of the Holy Spirit in their midst. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees responded by taking an opportunity to say that miracle was done by the power of the devil himself. So the wider context in Matthew 12 is the ordinary everyday people recognized that this was Jesus, the Messiah, sent by the Spirit. But the scribes refused and hardened their hearts and attributed his ministry to the devil. That's the wider context. Now let's look at the even broader context in the history of Israel. God the Father sent John the Baptist to prepare the nation for the coming Messiah, prepare the way of the Lord. Many common people have responded to John's call and repented. John uh, or Matthew 21 says, John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe in him. Harlots, publicans, sinners believed, but the religious leaders would not permit their hearts to recognize the Lord Jesus. In fact, they actually arrested John the Baptist, and ultimately they had him killed. God the Son came, as promised. He called the nation to trust him, but those same religious leaders asked for Jesus to be killed 
And yet on the cross, the Lord Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and demonstrated God's power in many convicting ways. How did those religious leaders respond? By arresting the apostles, ordering them not to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus, then killing Stephen themselves. And Stephen told them their sin. What was their sin? Acts 7.51 You do always resist the Holy Spirit. They were sinning against the Holy Spirit in that manner. They had sinned against the Father. They had sinned against the Son. And all that they graciously gave. But when it came to the point of Christ rising again, ascending, and the Spirit coming, and the Holy Spirit witnessing to who Christ was through the apostles, and then they rejected it. It was the end of the line for them. There could be no more forgiveness, because there would be no more message, no more messengers like Christ. You got the point? And so... This sin against the Holy Spirit, this unpardonable sin, seems to mean a deliberate closing of the heart and mind to the witness of the Spirit to Jesus. That's exactly what the scribes did. They would not accept the spiritual witness of who Jesus was. Now, sensitive souls have suffered much agony because of certain interpretations of this verse. Some in their past were forced to blaspheme Christ. Even Christians in times of persecution have been forced to blaspheme. And they worry, have they committed this sin? You remember Saul of Tarsus tried to force early Jewish Christians to blaspheme in Acts 26. And there have been dictatorships and communist governments in our own day trying to do this to believers. And remember, Peter the apostle cursed and swore that he did not know Jesus. And he was forgiven. He repented and was reinstated to a place of authority in the church. Listen to me this morning. If you are a Christian or a non-Christian and you fear that you have ever committed the unpardonable sin, that is sure proof that you have never committed it. Because anyone who has committed it is past feeling, past caring. They have outright rejected the gospel completely and permanently. And we can't know anyone who that may be. Only God knows. But ultimately this is a complete and utter rejection of the ministry of Christ that will take people to hell. Now let me say, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Some people, people go out at times and take half of what I said and misinterpret me. Listen carefully to what I'm saying this morning. Literally. This sin cannot be committed today in the sense that Jesus is not physically here as the Jewish Messiah performing miracles and signs to the nations. The nation has rejected him as their Messiah. They can't do that again. So in a literal sense, this sin as was committed here cannot be committed again. But spiritually, it can be committed in the sense of those who permanently reject Christ and the gospel, anyone who, who rejects the Holy Spirit's convicting influence and does not believe will not be forgiven, neither in this world nor the world to come. 
If you look at verse 22, the word that is used of the Pharisees saying that Jesus cast out devils by Beelzebub, the word saying is in the tense that means this was an ongoing and persistent thing they said. They went on saying it. Now listen, this does not teach that God is unwilling to forgive. But this unpardonable sin teaches that the person concerned is unwilling to receive God's forgiveness and persists in that permanent attitude just like the Jews did. And hardened their hearts so much that even to today, apart from a remnant, they are still in spiritual darkness. It was a historic sin that cannot be repeated in context, and yet it is being repeated in spiritual sense all over our world where people harden their hearts, some permanently, to Jesus Christ. Let me summarize everything I've said this morning. If we are serving the servant of Jehovah, opposition is certain. You will suffer if you serve, and if you serve as Jesus served, you will suffer as Jesus suffered. And that opposition at times can be serious. Family, friends, and even satanic opposition that we have seen this morning. But here's the message. The great gospel that we preach is that salvation is secure. To those who, hearing God's voice, do not harden their hearts, but believe his word. But there is a word of warning. If you do not use what God has given to you, you will lose it. The law of nature is, if a man will not do a thing, the time is bound to come when he cannot do it. You don't use an eye and patch it up you'll lose the sight in it. If you don't use a limb and tie it up, you will use, lose the use of it. If you cover over your ear for an extended period of time, you will lose your hearing. And there will come a time, if you constantly reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus and harden your heart, there will come a time when your heart will not be able to believe. It can be hardened through sin. It can be hardened through age, through time, through previous rejections of the gospel. All those things harden the soul. I wonder, am I talking to someone this morning in this family worship service? And you have constantly rejected the Lord Jesus. You need to be very careful that your next rejection is not a permanent rejection. That hardens your heart to such an extent that you resist the Holy Spirit to never speak to you again. Parrot Gibbs from the Pirates of the Caribbean was a terror to the commercial seas and finally he was hanged in New York City. But he acknowledged before his death that when he committed his first murder, and I use his words, his conscience was a hell in his bosom. But after sailing the seas years and years under the skull and crossbones, he became blunted and testified that he could have robbed a vessel, murdered a crew, and laid down to rest like a child in a cradle. Hardened. Hardened. 
There are many forms of unforgivable opposition in the sense that they are unjustified. But there is a rejection of Christ which is final and eternally unforgivable. And in that sense will never be forgiven in this age nor the age to come. Do not go into eternity having committed that sin. John chapters 14 and 16 tell us that the ministry of the Holy Spirit when Jesus left this world was to convince sinners that they are sinners and they need a saviour. And if you are beginning to be convinced of that, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. But if you resist that, you are in danger of rejecting his ministry in your life and the cross work of Christ and eternal salvation. That's what we're talking about today. The more you reject, the more you resist, the less light and feeling you will have. May anyone who finds themselves being convinced of these truths trust in Christ now before it is too late. Father, we thank you. Though it's hard to say those words, but we must get to the place. We thank you for when we suffer for serving the suffering servant of the Lord. And even when that opposition comes from friends and families, but even when it comes from satanic sources, angels of light, we thank you that we are in the fellowship of his sufferings. And yet, our Father, if we could just turn the tables of focus onto those who are doing the opposing for a moment, we fear for their souls. And we ask that none, certainly in this building, but none in our families and among our friends, none will permanently reject Jesus Christ. Give us a greater burden for their souls. Give us a greater confidence in the victory of the cross and claim it on their behalf. And bless us now as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name. Amen.